So Genesis 26, I'm going to start off with one of my pithy sayings. You can teach your kids table manners, but they will always eat like us. More is caught than taught. The story is, is we're going to see Isaac repeat the same sin as Abraham repeated. Okay? Children will feel the negative impact of their parents' bad decisions. If we expose our children to sin and reinforce that sin with our behavior, then our children are more likely to commit that sin themselves. The idea is, is we never sin in isolation. So somehow Abraham's kids found out about his shenanigans with going to Egypt and saying that Sarah, his wife, was his sister in order to save his own skin, okay? Somehow that rumor was spread through the family. And the application in that is a disobedient believer is a menace to everyone, right? We don't sin in isolation. Our sin, there's no such thing as a victimless crime. So let me ask you a question before we roll into the text here. It says, has your life been affected by your mom and dad's bad decisions? Do you have a propensity to do the very same things that they did? So let me ask you a question. Do you have to do those things? No. Sinful patterns are broken by the power of God in our life. The behaviors of your parents or the environment in which you are raised does not necessitate a stronghold in your life. Paul writes to the church in Corinth, he says, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ Jesus, he's a new creation. Old things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. That's 2 Corinthians 5.17. We live in a culture that enables... Rather than call sin, sin, we'll say things like addiction, disease, codependency, right? We don't call it what it is, thus enabling people to continue on in those sinful behavior patterns. But we have to remember, the Lord can set you free. So in Genesis 26, it starts off with, there was a famine in the land, besides the first famine that was in the days of Abraham. And Isaac went to Abimelech, king of the Philistines, in Gerar. So what we're seeing here is Isaac's first failure. There's a famine in the land. What's a famine? There ain't no food, there ain't no water, right? Times is tough. I remember years ago when I moved to the Upper Peninsula, people were like, oh, there's going to be a recession, and I'm like, That's all the UP's ever known. (laughs) We're doing pretty good. You know, we got got Verizon towers now. Remember when Verizon came in up the way? You're like, woo, yeah. So Isaac's first failure recorded here was that he is going to Abimelech. This is not the same Abimelech that Abraham went to. It's a different Abimelech, but of the same kind of dynasty, right? This is, I would believe Abimelech is more of a title than an actual name. You can look it up for yourself. But notice where he was living. He was living on a major trade route 
to Egypt named Gerar. Okay? Kind of like, we, you know, living outside of Vegas. <laughs> but it's also known as an encampment for the Philistines, which were the local Canaanite tribe. You could probably say he was living on the edge. See, Egypt, in a sense, was his emergency credit card. And Isaac now has an emergency. Although Isaac is a patriarch, he is not really what we would call a remarkable man. Scripture doesn't say much about him one way or another, and this is one of the only few portions that really gives us a glimpse of the character of Isaac. Abraham gets 14 chapters, and then Jacob's going to get 11. He gets one. You could say he was an ordinary son of an extraordinary father, and he's an ordinary father to an extraordinary son. But nonetheless, he's considered one of the patriarchs. You see, Egypt was better equipped for famine, being located on the Nile River, which the Nile River was not replenished by rainfall. They were considered the breadbasket of the Middle East. Now, he's living in what's called the Promised Land, and, and today we call it Israel. And this part of the, the country was strictly replenished by rainfall. All of Israel pretty much is, right? Even, even the River Jordan comes from the mountains that are to the north. If you're taking notes, Deuteronomy 11, verses 10 through 15, gives us a description. Keep in mind, Deuteronomy hasn't been written yet, from Isaac's point of view. But it says, For the land which you go to possess is not like the land of Egypt from which you have come, where you sowed your seed and watered it by foot, as a vegetable garden. But the land which you cross over to possess is a land of hills and valleys which drinks water from the rain of heaven, a land for which the Lord your God cares. The eyes of the Lord your God are always on it, from the beginning of the year to the very end of the year. And it shall be that if you earnestly obey my commandments, which I command you today, to love the God, excuse me, the Lord God, and serve him with all your heart and with all your soul, then I will give you the rain for your land is in its season, the early rain and the latter rain, that you may gather in your grain, your new wine, and your oil. And I will send grass in your fields for your livestock that you may eat and be filled. The promised land is a place of faith. That's really what this comes down to. In order to live here, you need faith. And that's what God's saying. Now, Isaac is going to do what his dad did. He went to Egypt. All throughout the pages of Scripture, you'll see Egypt is a type of the world. And whenever people go back to Egypt, it's always considered a bad move. Sometimes there's a false thought in Christianity that once you give your life to Jesus, everything is happily ever after. Right? Some people think that, you know, you'll never have any problems once you really commit yourself to the Lord and following after his ways, that it's just going to be a hop, skip, and a jump. But... The idea is we're not, we're not born onto a playground. We're born again into a battlefield, and there's going to be problems. There's going to be tribulation. 
Christian living is not happily ever after. Now, in the sense we'll be in heaven for eternity, that's where that will kick in. But Jesus says, while you're on this earth, you are going to have problems. And so we always have the temptation before us to go back to the world when things get hard. So what's the point of famine? Why would God allow famine on a believer's life? Well, famine tests our faith. And we know that a faith not tested is a faith that can't be trusted. So this is a test of faith for Isaac and his family. This isn't a famine brought on by his disobedience. This is God maturing his child. Verse 2, Then the Lord appeared to him and said, Do do not go down to Egypt. Live in the land of which I shall tell you. Now note, this is one of two appearances that God makes to Isaac. What would it be like for God to appear to him? What What was that? Was it a voice? Was it a, did he come as a ghost? Did he come as a person? We don't know. It just says God himself appeared. Imagine if we lived our life as if God had just walked into the room. What was Isaac doing? You know, eating a falafel and, oh, the boss is here. And he shows up to warn him, to correct him, to, 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 to give him instruction. He says, don't go to Egypt. He knew what he was going to do. He's telling him, he's, rem, he's reminding him, dwell in the land. Remember, the, the promise that God made to Abraham and his descendants was a conditional promise. God was only obligated to protect and provide for Abraham and now Isaac if they dwelled in the land. Now we're going to see God is simply showing mercy to Isaac in this narrative. Isaac is really getting what he doesn't deserve here. Verse 3 says, he says, dwell in this land and I will be with you and bless you. There's your condition. For to you and your descendants I give all these lands and I will perform the oath which I swore to Abraham your father. And I will make your descendants multiply as the stars of heaven. I will give to your descendants all these lands and in your seed all the nations of the earth shall be blessed. Because Abraham obeyed my voice and kept my charge, my commandments, my statutes, and my laws. So really God's saying, I'm blessing you because of your dad's sake. So verse 6, so Isaac dwelt in Gerar. Now we're going to camp on this topic of God's mercy. Psalm 103, King David pens a a bit of a memoir of God's mercy on the history of the nation of Israel. It's a good reminder for us. In Psalm 103, starting in verse 1, it says, A psalm of David, Bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me. Bless his holy name. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget not all his benefits, who forgives all your iniquities, who heals all your diseases, who redeems your life from destruction, who crowns you with loving kindness and tender mercies, who satisfies your mouth with good things so that your youth is renewed like the eagles. The Lord execute righteousness and justice for all who are oppressed. 
He made known his ways to Moses, his acts to the children of Israel. The Lord is merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in mercy. He will not always strive with us, nor will he keep his anger forever. He has not dwelt with us according to our sins, nor punished us according to our iniquities. For as the heavens are high above the earth, so great is his mercy toward those who fear him. So, to sum this up in a nutshell, I mean, the idea here is our faults are really like a grain of sand compared to the mountain of God's mercy. You and I cannot outsin God's love. Have you tried to? I mean, I think in some times in my life, uh, wearing out Nikes for Jesus, where you're just like, oh, I'm just giving him a reason to stay on the cross right now, you know, and we try to disqualify ourselves. But God, that's not God. What, what does it say here? He is... He crowns you with loving kindness, tender mercies. He forgives all of our iniquities. He heals our diseases. You gotta, oftentimes, you've got to remember in a trial who God is. Because we know who we are. We know what we're capable of. Verse 7. And the men of the place asked about his wife, and he said, She is my sister. For he was afraid to say, she is my wife. Because he thought, lest the men of the place kill me for Rebekah, because she is beautiful to behold. So this is Isaac's second failure. Notice the progression. Immediately, after being blessed by God, Isaac degenerates into lying. He's not alone. I want to look at the life of Peter. For you who are taking notes, I can read it out loud. It's Matthew 16, verse 13. When Jesus came into the region of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, saying, Who do men say that I am? Or who do I, excuse me, who do men say that I, the Son of Man, am? So they said, Some say John the Baptist, some say Elijah, and other, others, Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. He said to them, But who do you say that I am? Simon Peter answered and said, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Jesus answered and said to him, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And I also say to you that you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades shall not prevail against it. And I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, and whatever you lose on earth will be loosened in heaven. Then he commanded his disciples from that, that, that they should tell no one that he was Jesus the Christ. From that time, Jesus began to show to his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and the chief priests and scribes, and he be killed and he be raised to the third day. This is where Peter fails. Then Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him, saying, Far be it from you, Lord, this shall not happen to you. But he turned and said to Peter, Get behind me, Satan. You are an offense to me, for you are not mindful of the things of God, but the things of men. I mean, he just got an A for giving the right answer. And he's like, That even ain't you, Pete. That was the Holy Spirit. That, da, da, da. Then the very next, what does he do? Open mouth, insert foot. Athlete's mouth, right? 
What's Peter's problem? What's Isaac's problem in these contrasting narratives? They're both afraid. They're both afraid of what their future lies. Guess what? They're just like you and I. See, you may not know your future, but you know who holds your future. See, Jesus is the good shepherd. Remember, we are sheep. And I'm going to say something you may be offended by, but it's the truth. Is the scriptures make it real clear. Sheep are stupid, and they need to be led. If you've ever been to a sheep farm, they're not, they're not, I don't see how sheep could have ever existed in the wild, right? I mean, they're a ridiculous animal. And the, and the scriptures tell us we're all sheep, and all, all like sheep, we've grown, gone, gone astray. See, in the Middle East... And to this day, shepherds will lead their flock into dark, scary ravines to find the water and fresh foliage that's on the bottom. See, Jesus, the good shepherd, will lead you through the valley of death to teach you and I to fear no evil. We know the psalm, Psalm 23. Some of you guys may have this memorized. It says, a psalm of David, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me to lie down in green pastures. He leads me besides the still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in the paths of righteousness for his namesake. Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup runs over. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life, and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. So you can trust where the Lord is going to lead you, and it's going to get scary. It's going to be uncertain. That's the walk of faith. We walk by faith, not by sight. And sometimes when you pray, Lord, increase my faith, what happens? The bottom falls out in your life. Everything you've learned to trust and hustle with goes away, and God goes, now you just have to trust in me. And you're like, that's not what I meant. I meant I needed the Powerball numbers. I, 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 <laughs> I just need two bucks and six numbers, Lord. I didn't. And the Lord's like, no, you need a prayer closet. Now, it came to pass when he had been there a long time that Abimelech, king of the Philistines, looked through a window and saw, and there was Isaac. Showing endearment to Rebecca, his wife. I had to teach this in a Sunday school class with kids. And when we use King James Version, it says Isaac was what? What was he doing, Aaron? You have, you have your Shakespearean translation? Sporting. He was sporting with his wife. Now in the youp, it's like, oh, she's driving a boat, right? I'm casting, she's driving, we're sporting, you know? We're an ATV, ATV going on the trail. You know, no, 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 no. There's, there's a flirtation. There's a little googly eyes. There's a ooh, righteous foxy mama, right? Isaac was not acting very brotherly to Rebecca in PG. Then Abimelech called Isaac and said, quite obviously, she's your wife. So how could you say she is my sister? Isaac said to him, because I said, lest I die on account of her. And Abimelech now said, 
What is this that you've done to us? One of the people might soon have laid with your wife and you would have brought guilt on us. So Abimelech charged all his people saying, he who touches this man or his wife shall surely be put to death. Ooh. So just like Pops, Isaac gets rebuked by the world who at this moment actually seems to have more character than a man of God. They're like, we can't lie with your wife because it'll make us guilty. This is the world. This is the pagan, heathen, idol-worshiping world going, there's a sanctity to marriage that we cannot violate conscientiously. Now, keep in mind, this culture would kill you, then take your wife. Okay? They found the loophole. Okay? But the world is now correcting the believer. Well, and guess what God does to Isaac? Isaac gets blessed by God. What? Why? Because God blesses. It's the nature of God to bless his people. See, Isaac does not deserve God's blessing. And you know what? Neither do you and I. Verse 12, it says, Then Isaac sowed in the land and reaped in the same year a hundredfold, and the Lord blessed him. Keep in mind, there's a famine, right? The man began to prosper and continued prospering until he became very prosperous. For he had possessions of flocks and possessions of herds and a great number of servants, so the Philistines envied him. Now the Philistines had stopped up all the wells which his father's servant had dug in the days of Abraham his father, and they had filled them with earth. And Abimelech said to Isaac, Go away from us, for you are much mightier than we. You know, the world gets envious at Christians when God blesses us materially. Their thinking is, they think they should be blessed and not you. Verse 17, Then Isaac departed from there and pitched his tent in the valley of Gerar and dwelt there. And Isaac dug again the wells of water which they had dug in the days of Abraham his father, for the Philistines had stopped them up after the death of Abraham. He called them by the names which his father had called them. Now, to you and I, a well is kind of like a cute little thing you have in your backyard. Anyone here grow up with well water? Like, were you dependent? Like, like there's some areas of the country that, that need that. But to them, a well wasn't necessarily tapping the groundwater supply as much as it was a cistern where water would collect. And so for them, water was very, very precious. And even today, you'll see that these wells and these cisterns are, are guarded by armed guardsmen, right? This, this is no laughing matter because you can't live without water, right? I mean, you can have everything else, but if you don't have water... You're going to die. Isaac's a well digger. You know how hard it is to dig a well? Anyone here try to dig a well? 
Try digging a well in sandstone and granite and bedrock by hand. It's a lot of work. And for like the enemy to come and just dump backfill into it, isn't that frustrating? But what does he do? He goes and digs it again. I like that Isaac, you know, the thing is with water is water isn't just something that's just for Isaac. It's for the other people around him. And I, and I believe as, as men and women of God, it's, it's, for, it's up to us to keep those wells open in our life where maybe the enemy has come into your life and plugged it up, right? Maybe, maybe the, the well you had of devotion time is plugged. Maybe the, the well of prayer time is plugged. Maybe the well of church has been plugged with what the enemy has said, oh, use, use your free time in a, in a more practical manner, right? Maybe there's just some things that you once started well and, and you realize as you've become a parent or you've become somebody in charge of the well-being of other people, the well in which you drew from wasn't just for you, but it was your own spiritual maintenance that was necessary to take care of and love the people around you. And you've got to keep those wells open, right? As we, as we, as a church culture, we like to go to church retreats and we like to go to men's conferences because it keeps us as good employees. It keeps us as good stewards of what God has. You know, it's good, it's good face time with the Lord, and, the, and, and we pursue that just so we're bearable. You know, when I tell my employer when I used to work for them, I said, you want me to go to church every Sunday, you want me to go to midweek study, and you want me to go to these conferences? And they're like, well, why? Otherwise, I'll steal from you. Otherwise, I'll be the worst guy on the job. Otherwise, I'll just be completely unbearable if I do not keep a short account with the Lord. So you want me to invest in going to these things. And they're like, very good. Very good. We, we see you are a good employee, and this is what it takes to get the best out of you. Then we're 100% behind it. Verse 19, And Isaac's servant dug in the valley and found a well of running water there. But the herdsmen of Gerar quarreled with Isaac's herdsmen, saying, The water is ours. So he called the name of the well Esek, because they quarreled with him. Then they dug another well, and they quarreled over that one also, so they called its name Sitna. And he moved from there and dug another well, but they did not quarrel over it, so he called its name Rehoboth. Because he said, For now the Lord has made room for us, and we shall be fruitful in the land. Well, Let's look at the meanings of these wells' names. The first one, Esek, means contention. Sitna means opposition. And Rehoboam means roominess. So we can compare how Isaac handles his behavior regarding water rights versus how his dad would have handled the situation with water rights. It's kind of like up here. We don't fight over water. We fight over snow. There's family feuds up here because back in 74, Elmer blew his snow one foot into Riney's driveway, and now they're Hatfield and McCoy's, you know. I had a neighbor like that. She'd just come out with the ruler. Oh, the snow, you blew it. it like the blue, the, the, or actually the wind blew the snow into her yard as I'm blowing it. So... I would just go snowblow her, then she'd pay me. Go figure. You know, 
snow wars. So anyways, so you're going to see how Isaac, uh, he's a little more, how would you say, um, passive aggressive, a little more peaceful, right? He just kind of went down the road and did another one, right? Oh, okay. He was, he was Midwest nice. Oh, go ahead and take it. Oh. But versus Abraham, Abraham would lock and load and go to war, right? We see that. I mean, Abraham was a fighter. He had 200 and what, 18 trained men with him. So, you know, when it came to water rights, Abraham was very confrontational. But what we need the, to do in these situations is we need to have discernment when it comes to an appropriate way to resolve a conflict, we don't always have to go guns blazing, yet we always don't have to be taken advantage of and be the peacemaker. Romans 12, 18 tells us, if it is possible, okay, if it is possible, as much as depends on you, live peaceably with all men. Now, not all men want to live peaceably with us. There's just some people that just are contentious, and you just can't deal with them. But it's... We need to pray and seek the wisdom of the Holy Spirit on how to handle a conflict. Verse 23 says, Then he went up from there to Beersheba. You remember Beersheba from a past story. Beersheba is the well of oath. It was windy. So to Isaac, this is a homecoming of sorts. And what you're going to see at Beersheba is he is going to build an altar there. When someone builds an altar, it's, it's a reestablishment of worship. Let me ask you guys a question. What will it take for you to get back home to where God is? Examine yourself. Have you left your first love? Has God brought a famine or a contention into your life that is driving you home back to God? See, Revelation chapter 2, verses 4 through 5, it says, Nevertheless, I have this against you, that you have left your first love. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen, repent and do the first works, or else I will come to you quickly and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. What is it to do the first works as a believer? Number one, examine yourself. Are you in the faith? Are you truly born again? Have you received the forgiveness of Jesus Christ in your heart and have you repented of your sins? Okay. That's the first thing. You just, you just do a salvation check. Make sure you're born again. We like to use a term, and it, it's not theologically correct, but it's a tongue-in-cheek comment. Maybe you need to get born again again, right? Have you ever just drifted away in your faith, and you're like, you know what, I just need to reset, restart, get back to the basics with Jesus Christ, and to make Jesus a priority again, to make, to make reading my Bible a priority again, to, to simply admire the finished work of what Christ accomplished on the cross for me. See, if I were to go to God based on how, how well I've loved him, I would, I would be discouraged. But if I continue to be in awe, and if I continue to see what Christ has done regarding the sufficiency of his death on the cross, see, 
Jesus died not just for my past sins, but he's going to essentially die for the ones I'm committing now and the ones I will commit in the future. And so you realize how big the cross is in Christianity and how valuable the blood of Jesus Christ that cleanses you of unrighteousness is, right? So when you go to the altar, you recognize, all right, Jesus died. He declared it was finished. I can only receive forgiveness. Some days I don't, I don't ask God to forgive me. I thank him for forgiving me because he died once for my sins. He doesn't have to re-die. So when I recognize this is under the blood, it then puts me in a position to want to repent, right? To do that U-turn with my life, to change my behavior, because my motive now is to please God, to enter into this now loving relationship with God through his son, Jesus Christ. I can enter this relationship now knowing that God has his very best for me by sending his son, Christ, Jesus Christ, to the cross, So when I confess, I come into agreement with him that I am a sinner, saved by grace. And then when my heart changes, I repent. I do that U-turn. I continue to to draw close to Christ-likeness. And that's really what the altar provides. It's a great zeroing. It's a great place to just... when When you find yourself away from God's best in your life or just him being your number one, You start there, and then you just get reacquainted with your Lord and Savior. See, God wrote us a love letter, the Bible. And a lot of people will say, I don't understand the Bible. Well, maybe it's because you're reading someone else's mail. Maybe maybe it's you've, you've never taken the time to see what God has done for you. And so as you get into, I like to encourage people, get into the Gospel of John just to reboot your faith. Right? Because at the end of John, it says these things are written to show you that Christ is, 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 or Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God. Reestablish that lordship in your life. And then as you just continue to love on the Lord and receive the love he has for you, you go into Matthew and Mark and Luke. And then you can, you can now then get so acquainted with him that as you get into the doctrine in the parts of the Bible that tells us how to live, you're now more motivated because you know what Christ has first done for you. See, it's really hard to worship somebody you don't know. And oftentimes, some people may have only had just the simplistic salvation experience, or maybe they only had Sunday school, or maybe they just remember the snippets they've heard in church, but they've never gone home and developed their own intimacy with God themselves. So I think as we see Isaac, his dad was an altar builder. Every time the old man blew it, what did he do? All right, kids, we're going to church, right? He'd build the altar. Well, Dad, you just blew it. Shh. We're going to worship. But, Dad, you, hey, doesn't matter. Because it ain't about Isaac. It ain't about Abraham. It's about who Christ is. And so that's a good place. You know, when you're blowing it, all you got to say is oops. Right? Maybe your kids and your wife or your husband won't let you off the hook that easy, but the Lord will. He'll be like, okay, he's far more eager to forgive you than we are to repent. Have you ever thought of that? We always got to play this little game with God where we blow it and you're like, I don't know if I'm going to read the Bible. I'm going to get yelled at. I don't want to pray because he's not going to listen to me. And the Lord's like, man, I'm waiting for you. I really want you to come back. That's what it means to do the first works. Verse 24. There's a result. 
in this altar building experience, God is going to give him his presence and he's going to give him his word. And the Lord appeared to him the same night and said, I am the God of your father, Abraham. Do not fear, for I am with you. I will bless you and multiply your descendants for my servant, Abraham's sake. So he built an altar there and called on the name of the Lord, and he pitched his tent there, and there Isaac's servants dug a well. I like that. Immediately when he decided to build that altar, there was God's presence, his word. God values his word. God just simply tells Isaac what he already knew. But, you know, Isaac is a lot like me. He's a lot like you. Where Don't we have bad memories? Don't we walk out of church forgetting everything Ben said? I mean, that's probably a smart thing to do outside of church. But in all reality, you sometimes just forget what you read that morning or you've listened to on the radio. We're prone to forgetting. That's why God wrote it on a piece of paper. Moms, you know this, right? Right? And your, your sons still forget the note. Like, I've tried writing notes to myself when I forget the note. You know, you ever be at the grocery store and you're like, why am I here? Then you text the wife, hey, why did I go to the store? She's like, I didn't know you were going to the store. Now you just wander around trying to look like you're smart. And you're just like, oh, and then you come home with everything but the very thing you went there to buy. I think my, my walk with the Lord is like that, where I just simply have to just go back and just read what it says in black and white some days for my sake. And I never learn anything new about God when I read the Bible over and over and over again. I never do, right? Some people will say, I read the Bible once. Well, it's not a one and done. I mean, think of back in high school, the old days before text messaging, Howard. Remember the little paper footballs with the love letters? Remember? Did you guys do that? And you would open it up from your lady friend and she would like put the little hearts on the dots for her eyes, the glitter gel pen, right? And it was just all sorts of junior high girl gibberish and XX, hug, hug, kiss, kiss. And like you would read it over and over again. And then you'd have a little shoe box under your bed so your parents can't find it. And at night you would be like, oh, you're just reading the love letter over and over again. If we figure that out in the world, I mean, that's the same way we should treat the word of God as if God wrote you this love letter and you read it over and over again and you get to fall in love with the author. So the Lord appears, gives his present, gives his word, reminds him he's going to be blessed. 26, then Abimelech came to him from Gerar with Ahuzah, one of his friends, and Phicol, the commander of his army. And Isaac said to them, Why have you come to me since you hate me and have sent me away from you? But they said, We have certainly seen that the Lord is with you. So we said, Let there now be an oath between us, between you and us, and let us make a covenant with you. That you will do us no harm since we have not touched you and since we have done nothing to you but good and have sent you away in peace. You are now the blessed of the Lord. So he made them a feast and they ate and they drank. Then they arose early in the morning and swore an oath with one another and Isaac sent them away and they departed from him at peace. You know, there's something about when God is at work in your life, he... He will draw attention to your life for the world around you. They'll just recognize it, right? People will be there's something different about you. 
You've stopped stealing the toilet paper at work. What's going on in your life? How come you don't steal the pens anymore? How come you show up early and stay late? What's going on? How come, how come you just have a smile on your face? How come you're always whistling a tune? How come you're not kicking the dog and yelling at the kids anymore? Right? See, that's the thing is our relationship with God on the vertical, right? When we get things right here, it makes things right there too, right? We get right with people on the horizontal. People will recognize. So he has peace, peace excuse me, that's for Mike Tyson if you've heard that. Sorry. Verse 32, it came to pass the same day that Isaac's servants came to him and told him about the well which they had dug, and he said to him, we have found water. So he called it Sheba. Therefore, the name of the city is Beersheba to this day. And again, Sheba simply means oath. When Esau was 40 years old, he took his wives, Judith, the daughter of Beeri, the Hittite, and Bazemath, the, solder, or is it the, solder, the daughter of Elon, the Hittite, and they were a grief of mind, Isaac and Rebekah. Okay, Esau, where did he get the idea to take multiple wives, right? You know, the scripture shows us Adam and Eve, right? The Lord gave Adam his wife. He, he, there, there's nothing really, if, you, if you're careful about scripture, it doesn't outright prohibit having more than one wife, but it's implied that you should only have one wife. Does that make sense? Culturally, there's some things that creep into the patriarchs, although Esau is not considered a patriarch. But he took multiple wives, which is forbidden by Scripture. And then second, he took wives from the Canaanites. See, Abraham set the precedent all the way back in 24. Remember what he tells his assistant? He says, he sends his steward out. He says, go find my son a wife. But make sure you go back to my family and my land and take a godly wife from there. We know we covered that a couple weeks back, the idea of being unequally yoked. You don't want to marry somebody or be in a relationship with somebody that doesn't have the same worldview or the same set of values or the same morals and ethics as you because really what is it going to cause? Grief. See, Isaac, he's going to have peace with his neighbors, but he's going to have grief with his family. Now, we'll wrap it up with this. There are two ways you can look at this story. If you look at this story from the point of view of, of, of man's perspective, you can get disappointed and you can get discouraged because you'll just look at this going, well, look, God's people fail again. So why try? Can anybody do it right? They couldn't do it right then. I'm not doing it right now. So what's the point of all this? Why bother trying? You ever tell yourself that? You ever get frustrated as you establish discipline in your life or some semblance to just make forward movement in the kingdom of God? And you're just, you're just blowing it? You know, one of the things I look at with God is, as I've become a father, you don't look for perfection in your children. You look for growth. You look for effort. You look for an honest heart. And you're there like a dad pushing the child 
down the road on their bike. Remember when you take their training wheels off, you're still there to catch them and they're going to fall and scrape their knee and what do you do? You wipe off the blood, clean the dirt, put them back on the bike. Hey, keep going, kid. There's more spills to come. <laughs> See, really what this is from God's point of view, this is our takeaway in this narrative, is encouragement. See, when God's people are faithless, the Lord still remains faithful. This really is a story of God's grace to the fallen heroes of the faith. Christian, God factored in our stupidity when he called us. Right? You may be surprised at your failure. or You ever try to be like, well, I'm not worthy. I'm, I'm not worthy of God's blessing. Guess what? None of us are. If you think about it, you're just, you're just happy to be here. I'm just happy to be here. And so when you look at this, dwell on God's richness and his mercy, that we just get to do this. We get to serve the Lord. We get to make mistakes, right? There's a lot of room for us to grow, right? His mercies are new every day. I like to tell myself that when I wake up in a funk and I'm discouraged at my failure from the day before. I'm just like, all right, Ben. His mercies are new every day. All right, we get to reset the clock today. All right, very good. So let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for your mercies. We thank you for the long-suffering and the patience and the uh, just abundance of love you shed on your children, knowing they need it because all of us have fallen short of the glory of God. We've all sinned, and we can't out-sin your love. And so we love you, and we thank you, and we praise you. In Jesus' name, amen.